there anything you guys uh, want to talk about that we haven't addressed? Um, I named my cat Pazuzu. <laughs> we have a, a beautiful, fluffy black Halloween cat, and we named her Pazuzu. That was Carrie Elza, Associate Professor of Media Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Carrie and I have talked about other movies in previous episodes, but I had no idea how perfectly suited she was to talk about the topic of today's episode, because Pazuzu, for those of you who are not familiar, is the name of the demon in The Exorcist. You'll have to listen to the episode to find out why she picked it. This episode is my Halloween treat, because we're talking about 1973's The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin from a screenplay by the author of the best-selling novel, William Peter Blatty. This year is the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist, which was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress for Linda Blair. In 1973, audiences were immediately enraptured by the film. It was the third highest grossing movie of the decade of the 1970s. And The Exorcist went on to drive public fascination with the devil and exorcisms inside of churches, across popular culture, and deep in the public imagination. I was curious about the cinematic qualities of the film, as well as the religious content. So along with Carrie Elza, my second guest is Catherine Lofton, the Lex Hickson Professor of American Studies and Religious Studies, Professor of History and Divinity at Yale University, where she also serves as the Dean of Humanities. Catherine is the author of Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon, and an essay collection titled Consuming Religion. She and I have been friends for over 20 years, which is why I call her Katie throughout our conversation. I am Shawnee Luft, and this is No Cure for Curiosity, my podcast for curious people. I hope you will enjoy as much as I did the close reading that Carrie, Katie, and I offer of the original film. We'll talk about all those famous scenes you remember, the swiveling head, the pea soup, a particularly infamous scene involving Reagan and a crucifix, as well as the film's portrayal of religion and faith and the hysterical reaction of audiences watching The Exorcist five decades ago. Over the course of our conversation, we reference a few articles and books that I've added to the show notes for those of you who want to dig even deeper, including a fantastically scathing film review by Pauline Kael of The New Yorker from 1974, and a recent essay by religious studies professor Colleen McDaniel in her edited volume, Catholics in the Movies. You can see those links in the show notes. One last thing. This is your trigger warning. The Exorcist deals with torture, violence, sexual assault, the demonic, and so does our conversation. So if that's not your bag, come back in November for something completely different. For everybody else, let's get started. My first question to Carrie and Katie was to ask them what their first experience was watching the film. You'll hear Carrie's voice first. I was in a horror movie class in undergrad. Um, I went to, to Smith and our screening time was at eight o'clock at night <laughs> and we watched all of these horror movies at eight o'clock at night and I had to walk back to the dorm at 10 o'clock at night um, with a buddy I had a buddy but I remember watching The Exorcist and being so struck by light <laughs> just all, like the like the the light coming down from the lamp posts and silhouettes right. and the creeping shadows but the first time I saw The Exorcist, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm no Pauline Kael here. Um, we can talk about Pauline Kael's excoriation of this movie, which is a masterpiece. But, yeah. um, but I, I mean, I just, uh, I utterly loved it from the get go. So that was my initial experience watching it. 
How about you, Katie? I had not seen the film until this past year when I was asked to be on a panel about it. <laughs> 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 you know, it's the 50th anniversary of two right. remarkable American films, The Exorcist and Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> and I- I'm a Jesus Christ Superstar person. I saw that from a very young age, but horror was not a genre that I picked up and even and knowing more what it depicted about Catholicism didn't pull me in. So I only saw it for the first time this summer. This summer. And I would definitely put myself more in the Pauline Kael camp. Oh, no. I'm very, I know it's great. It's a great setup, um, but I'm, I'm very interested in taking up what, what makes this a film that pulls people in. So for me, I'm, I'm a resistant viewer. I don't, I, I have a hard time seeing why it was popular. I can name things that I think made it. And I, read things that argue it forward but it is it's not a piece of popularity that works on on, on my uh experience it, it doesn't pull me in but i am interested in its popularity and i want to talk about it i the first time i saw the movie uh it's like an episode of that 70s show i was in my friend joe's basement and um he my friend ryan and kevin the four of us uh hung out together we rented it on vhs and there was something kind of mysterious about vhs that you don't get anymore and I remember knowing that there were these subliminal uh, flashes that were like designed to, um, you know, affect audiences' moods. And I had also heard there was a lot of mythology around it that I think is part of what uh, intrigued me about it was like people passing out in the movie theater. I, I actually, I just, I just want to read because you know we we have a colleague Colleen McDonald who wrote a great essay on on The Exorcist, and I just want to read aloud some of those physical results because i would like I, I love this topic okay in los angeles a theater manager estimated that each screening of the film resulted in an average of four customers fainting six vomiting and many fleeing in panic more serious stories of damage included an english teenager found dead apparently from an epileptic seizure one day after seeing the film a german boy who shot himself in the head a teen who murdered a nine-year-old girl and claimed he did it while possessed and a man who became convinced he was possessed underwent an all-night exorcism in his church, then killed his wife with his bare hands. So this is Connie McDonald recording the loudness of this physical effect of the film. And I, I just want to begin there. That's such a striking, as, as is repeated in the literature, there are not many films that create this visceral effect. What's, 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 why do we think this happens? Just what, what's, what's our theory of why this creates such visceral, uh, let's assume... Only one eighth of these examples is anywhere near truth. Still, why? Well, there's a lot of discussion in many of the reviews of this movie that they're shocked and appalled that it's skated by without an X. Though chances are good that a lot of people who were just weren't prepared, they didn't have the expectations going in. So I, I would I would say that probably a significant amount of those are probably true. Um, and there's I heard I read about a miscarriage. There's a miscarriage too. I mean, all of these stories, of course, um, William Friedkin just loved all of this because that was his goal. You know, he's known for having this kind of cinema of immediacy, um, and. I, by the way, those are not my words. That's um, David Cook writing about filmmakers of the 1970s. And that kind of authenticity and realism and just flying by the seat of your pants and creating a visceral effect in audiences was already visible in the French connection. And so, you know, I think that part of it has to do with certain choices of effects. For me, watching this movie again, it was the angiograph or the angiogram yeah, whatever you call that moment where they put a needle into her neck, um, and you know, and I did remember that scene 
but I did it. I had way more of a visceral reaction to it this time than I did before. I don't think that's the sort of thing that we see very often in movies these days. And it was like, let's face it, it was a sadistic choice to put that in the movie. But it was already preparing audiences for special effects that were going to be really authentic and really brutal in terms of, you know, embodied experience. I hadn't realized until I was reading about it the how much the studios played up people passing out in the theater. Like that was part of the promotional campaign. And so that makes me question how much of these were actual things that happened and how much of this were studios um, kind of goosing audiences and kind of um, getting them into a kind of um, hyper state. But also, if you do that, if you say to people, um, you know, people across the world are passing out or freaking out or killing themselves, and then you show the movie, I think it's a prediction that then comes true. You kind of make people sort of act a little crazier because you. I think you kind of create this kind of social contagion. The scene that actually upset people the most was not in the second half of the movie during the exorcism. It was the medical stuff. It was that um, spinal tap scene. I couldn't agree more that it's the most viscerally plaintive where the body feels what might happen to it and the sense that it's futile. The viewer knows there's too much movie left for science to be able to solve this problem. Plus the title tells us something else is coming. And the sense of medicalization is always holding us down and doing things we are not going to be solved by having done to us. And especially in this sort of investigative sense where she had done possessive behavior. So the fear I felt watching that scene was, what if she does start jerking? The demon doesn't respect medical science. That's the fear in my horror Mm -hmm. heart is that her embodiment can't be held subject to medicalization's rules and will watch her get slashed by the instruments of science to get visceral and vivid about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and all the close-ups really adds to that feeling of tension during that time, you know, the because it also brings back our memories, right, of having being kids and having to hold still for things like shots. Um, I did want to add one more thing about the hyping up of all of these reactions yeah. that audience members allegedly had. And that is that it's right out of the William Castle playbook too. So 1950s horror, you know, William Castle mm-hmm. and um, and gimmicks. There were promises on posters that say, it will make you scream. It will make right. you pass out. Don't tell your friends about what you see at the end. You know, there's all kinds of, um, of things like that. Your attention, please. During every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre, the life of everyone in the theater will be insured by Lloyd's of London for $1,000 against death by fright. However, even Lloyd's of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known heart condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. But that was a very real experience that probably William Friedkin had had in the 1950s and was in a way reproducing for a new generation in 1973. Carrie, I do have a question about this. Is yeah. when the, in, in the context of other horror movies or where special effects were, did The Exorcist look really different in terms of imagining what could be done on screen? 
Oh my God. They had the best guy in the business. It, they had Dick Smith who invented um, blood as we know it. I mean, <laughs> really? Yeah. Before, before the 1970s, um, well, late sixties, we have hammer blood, right. Which is like red paint. Mm-hmm. And then Dick Smith was the one I, I think, I'm, I don't think I'm making this up. I think Dick Smith is the one who came up with the formulation for realistic movie blood. And this is coming right after, you know, um, Bonnie and Clyde, when we have the, the development of squibs, um, better, better and more authentic looking squibs. After the demise of, of the Hollywood production code and the rise of the rating system in the late 1960s, we just have amazing, amazing strides in special effects. And of course, Friedkin is just going to push for authenticity in every single thing that they do. Um, and also he was very coy, Friedkin was, in, in interviews about how some of these things were done. And so that that kind of element of mystery, I think, added to people's feeling of um, verisimilitude when watching the movie. I want to talk for a minute about the opening of the movie. The first 10 minutes of The Exorcist, uh, they take place in Iraq, where it was really filmed. Uh, You meet Father Marin, who's overseeing an archaeological site, and it introduces this relationship between Marin and the demon. But it's also, I don't know if experimental is the right word. It's not like it's narratively moving forward. You see shots of dogs fighting, and then a clock suddenly stops. There's all these really loud sounds, and then complete silence. And it's it's like 10 minutes of a collection of shots and sequences, where the first time I saw it, I thought, I don't even know what's happening. Is this how the movie is going to be? Uh, but when I watch it again as an adult, it really works as something that's extremely unnerving. The very first thing you hear before you see anything on screen is the call to prayer. You hear the strains of this creaky violin. You see the words, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. And then the first thing that happens is the call to prayer. And then you see the first shot of the film. And it seems, I I haven't read a lot about this, but I'm sure people have written about, Friedkin is really letting anxiety about Islam and uh, the Middle East, like, do a lot of work for him. What are your thoughts when you uh, watched it for this conversation? Well, I always think that the call to prayer, you know, is, is a repetition of two things. God is great, hurry to prayer. God is great, hurry to prayer. So I was struck when I saw, even though I had read things that had written about it, how, um, mm-hmm. to me, ill-reconciled the beginning is with the rest of the film. The film doesn't give a thoroughgoing account of why that is. I can hypothesize why it is. But at the level of mystery and of religious demand, and I do think this film is a profound advertisement for religion, as its critical reviewer suggested, and from the beginning to the end. God is great. Hurry to prayer. Hurry to prayer. Yeah. Hurry to prayer. <laughs> and so I felt it actually made sense to me. The question of how Islamophobia and Orientalism function in the sense of what has been unleashed, my sense is that we're supposed to get a feeling like that that these dark forces can be welcomed through the piercing of different layers of the past. And that antiquities have always been in so many films portals between previous times of oracular magic and this moment. So some sense that something was cracked open 
um, but that demonic forces are always around us. The demonic voice then doesn't give any reference to the Middle East as a part of their origin. And indeed, mm-hmm. if anything sounds very familiar. So I, 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 I sit in mystery as to how we're supposed to reconcile its Orientalism, but I certainly felt the power of God from the outset. I mean, I, I remember um, the first couple of times I watched this movie, I didn't really get the connection between the opening scene and the rest of the movie at all. Yeah. But, you know, in retrospect, it shows a lot of influence from other filmmakers at the time. So mm. it's a little bit like Nicholas Rogue and Walkabout. It's a little bit like mm. um, Jodorowsky and El Topo it creates this kind of atmosphere of dread and something ancient and something that we here in the U S cannot possibly fathom. And I'm reminded too, you know, we all know, and this is, it's a meme now that if you find something buried and it looks weird, you better put (laughs) it back. But I do, I do think that perhaps audiences at the time would get that sense of kind of otherworldly mystical dread and absolutely the sense that God is great and a really important presence in this film. But I'm not so sure that they get that narrative connection very clearly. Uh, I certainly don't think I did when I watched the movie for the first time. Do you think um, it is relevant that the the movie makes clear that this family is more than just the top 1%. They're like the top quarter of the top 1%. The very first thing Reagan says is, can I have a horse? <laughs> and so it's, it, the movie makes really clear, you know, they have these two servants that work in the house, um, that this is like a wealthy woman. Do you think, did, did that stand out to you in any way? Is that meaningful? I think the wealth exists. Here's my hypothesis. You need a rich family to believe she consults 18 doctors. Oh, yeah. You need to move through the whole shoals of modernity without any worries. So Ellen Burstyn can be stopped at nothing. Everything, every question, every medicalization, so that all the scientific observers can feel exhausted. We know she has the cash. She'll go crazy. She'll get sick Mm -hmm. because this child, she can afford it and she's going to do it. And then finally, I give up to the thing that costs nothing, but just admitting that God needs (laughs) to handle the situation. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) I buy it. That sounds that sounds like the solution to a narrative problem in a screenplay. I buy it. And that gets us to the one hour mark. Chris goes to Father Karras, who has this whole other plot that we've kind of been following, and then starts the exorcism. So let's talk about Karras for a little bit. So what we learn about him, the very first line I think he says in the whole movie, there's not a day in my life that I don't feel like a fraud, um, and that he's lost his faith, and that this has something to do with his like guilt about his mom. This is the other way, by the way, where class comes up because Karis feels really guilty that his mother is in a uh, a mental hospital that is like kind of perceived as low quality. And um, the mom's brother says, if you would have had more money, we could have put her in a nicer place. And so there's like a class difference between the priest and the um, the family. Those are the two things you learn about Karis. He's a priest who lost his faith and he's struggling economically. And he was a boxer. Yes, that's right. And that's why you see him right after getting the wound of being insulted. Who's going to get the money to me? Is it you? You then see him boxing. So the kind of resolution in what our colleague Amy Collier just describes as the iconic Catholic sport, boxing. Somehow you're in a, you're in a battle with yourself in a situation you can't control, in a ring you didn't design. Just the physicality of him as a figure. I was struck by it in part because I was um, delighted to discover that neither of the female identified leads had a lot of excess physicalization of themselves described, but instead it's the male character who gets mm-hmm. a lot more of um, uh, capture for his mightiness, his ability. And 
I think we're supposed to be staged to think he will be able to be the person who can embody and take on the demon in the end. And he's, he's ready for it. Right. Uh, and that next one side, I was just too old. He's done it too many times. He's worn down. It's uh, Katie. I'm really curious. Uh, the, the exorcism begins like an hour and 15 minutes into the movie. When you were watched it uh, for the first time, did you think finally, Jesus, when, when is this exorcism going to start? Like, did it feel like it took a really long time to get there? I thought I really could see the procedure. The film is so loud. Once it gets out of a rock, its procedure is very clean. It, it, it is meandering and slow paced, but the plot is so clearly driven towards this resolution that I did anticipate it would be at the end. What I didn't anticipate was how just how plain clothed the ritual action was, mm-hmm. how I think for many people who saw it, see it. It's the only complete ritual they've ever seen in their lot, their American secular <laughs> lives. And that it's so kind of boring. It's not a very magic. You know, there's rituals in Indiana Jones that are more exciting and have more <laughs> amulets and potions. This is just text. Two dudes. At one point, they clean some cloth. Like it is a very only because it got the pea soup on it. It's just an extremely lo-fi ritual, which adds, I think, to the sense of authenticity. Every need he has delivered me. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Save your servant. Who places her trust in thee, my God. Be unto her, O Lord, a fortified tower. In the face of the enemy. This is something familiar. It's been done. And you hear in anticipation of it, oh, these can go on for hours. They can go on for days. Uh, mystifying and sort of building your tension. But it gets resolved with relative dispatch if only at the slaughter of two bodies in the process. So the sense that all you need is a book, two believers, and the kind of small hype speech that Max inside of us says, don't bring your other stuff in this room, man. Just don't bring it in. Don't bring <laughs> yeah. in what you got. Just bring in the book, bring in the word, bring in the faith, nothing else. Which, you know, just felt like a kind of pre-Olympics moment too. This sort of sense of a, a final act of, you know, there's other 70s films about triumphant athletic accomplishments. That's what the final 20 minutes felt like was a sort of survival of, to older gentlemen surviving a plain clothes ritual. Well, and you have the incredible restraint shown in not trying to depict faith visibly. So yeah. I, you know, I, I always when I when I always see the the exorcism, it always amazes me that it is so simple, that it is just these two guys with their book, and there's no attempt to show some kind of white force or or, right. or other signs that it's succeeding. Instead, we're just asked to understand that it's faith. So the repetition and the adherence to the ritual and sheer belief and force of will is what makes this succeed. And I mean, of course, this is one of the things that makes it such an excellent um, Catholic recruitment film is the idea that faith isn't something that you see. Faith is something that you that you believe that you can't you, you it can't be externalized. It's something that the success of these priests is something that they drew drew upon from from within. Right. Um, but yeah, that it always kind of surprises me. That's an amazing restraint that there's mm-hmm. no white light. There's no hand of God. There's nothing like that. I love the point you're making about the restraint of how the ritual is presented. Um, we're recording this before the new Exorcism movie comes out. It'd be very interesting to see. And I'd be very surprised if they treated the Exorcism ritual without like more Harry Potter light shooting out of people uh, <laughs> than this movie did. I have another question that I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but I can't believe I've never seen anyone make this point. 
Uh, there's a sequence in this movie that is repeatedly referred to as a scene in which Reagan masturbates with a crucifix. And it is described as a masturbation with a crucifix scene like from the time the movie comes out till now it's 50 years later. And every time I watch it, I think, has anyone who thinks that ever seen a person with a vagina masturbate before she is not masturbating with a crucifix and the only reason this point is worth making is how insistent the media is in describing the scene that way i find it so weird that that doesn't change for 50 years all i'll say is that i agree with you it's rape yeah and the idea that it's referred to as masturbation irritates me in the same way that when people discuss the shower scene in psycho they say oh Janet Lee is pleasuring herself. She is not. She is taking a shower. You are reading things that aren't there. And it takes on a very different tone if you read it as, as that. So I, I completely agree. Harry, I love, I just I want to say, I really, I found it so shocking. So I appreciate you raising it. I've heard that for years. Mm-hmm. And I had a kind of image in my mind of what that would look like. But then it was so overtly, as you were going to say, carry rape by an object that was producing blood in its every action, mm-hmm. or you were, the visual was to think blood is coming from this. So the sense that she was being traumatized by the demon, and that that trauma was what led her mother to feel she had to stop her from the demon killing her. It just, that, that that's been labeled as masturbation has a lot to do with, I think, the confusion that the image of the child being possessed by a uh, non-binary or I think largely male identified demon who is enjoying traumatizing everyone around her with what freedom he gets to have with her body. Yeah, that's such a great point. I I wish and hope that people start referring to this as her being raped by this crucifix, which is in fact what is happening clearly on screen. We're watching her lose her virginity through violence. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a a thing that I, I just, there's a lot about the film that makes you not comfortable with the suffering of the child. See, by that point, you notice they've disfigured Reagan so much that she herself looks like a ghoul, like a goblin. But it is still the case that inside of it, and that's why later when we get the save me, help me, it's just so poignant. I mean, and a lot of people have in, in you know in the the analysis of this movie sense have referred to it as a as a, a metaphor of you know female coming of age and she's gotten her period and things like that and I also find that a little trite. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I if I completely buy that this time watching it through either. I mean per, perhaps that was part of the intention, um, but it's just the sheer amount of externally inflicted violence. It's just it it really struck me this time that that's the wrong way to describe this movie. Thank you for that. Uh, so. I feel like uh, at the point where the two priests, where Marin and Karis enter the room and you see their breath, it feels like you're now at the top of the roller coaster because the rest of the movie, things happen so quickly and there's so much. The uh, Another thing I noticed was just uh, that I hadn't really paid that close attention to is the cinematography is really, really remarkable. The scene in which she floats up in the air, it just looks like a painting. It's really cool it's really well done and the fact that that has to be done in camera without with without showing wires it's like both like a really impressive magic trick and also an incredibly aesthetically powerful scene yeah i mean the use of light in this movie is really great um i know that they shot it with a lot of uh available light 
um, in mm. order to give it that kind of dark look. And I know that it took a lot of work um, for them to produce those kinds of um, actually legible images using only available light. But yeah, the, during the levitation scene, uh, the cinematographer's name is Owen Roisman, and he he basically had each frame painted in order to remove the wires. And that effect holds up today. I think it really does. What's interesting to me about that is William Peter Blatty, who um, wrote the book and that became an enormous bestseller. William Peter Blatty has often said that his motivation for the story is to reintroduce this idea that if the devil exists, God must also exist. And that this is, in reality, like a story that is about faith and hope and spirit. And I thought... I. I'm not sure that Blatty accomplished the thing or even uh, came close to what he wanted. I'm curious, like what you walked away thinking this movie communicates about faith and or about specifically the belief in God? Well, I do think it's a theist film, mm -hmm. but I meaning the film believes in God. But I think the film also depicts why belief in God is not necessarily a possible thing on earth, which is why human beings are going to be regularly tortured by things they're surprised by and fumble even in deep faith in moments where they are set to uh, act. So I think it's a, a pretty clear depiction of, of, of commitment to God as the ultimate concern for human order. Um, but I, I, and I think it also is seeking to advertise that at the end of the day, there are no systems that have come up to solve the deepest problems than those that bridge what you can see and what you can't. Because I think all of those great scan shots of the brain are actually really great. They are advertising that medical science can see a lot. I haven't seen in many films that long lingering look at right. what doctors are doing when they're looking. And you see they're really seeing the brain. What is unseen is terrifying. And religion is a word to describe the bridging between the human and the superhuman, between the seen and the unseen. And medical science, human sciences, we are limited by what our instruments that humans make can see. And they are inca incapacitated before those ephemera that decide so much of our good and bad. Why does that bus hit my son? Why did that hurricane hit that shore? Why did that body get possessed by that devil? You can go to a doctor and you will try to, and they'll solve a lot of your problems. But at the end of the day, you're going to need someone who's an instrument of God. Right. So then the the two kinds of like powers in this movie, the municipalities are not God and the devil. It's just the devil and faith in God, right? Like God doesn't show up as a character. There's no indication that their faith has more behind it than just faith. Um, I do think it's true that that their faith is is portrayed as really powerful, but it it's odd to me how how often I've heard Blatty insist that this is a movie that like is trying to get people to believe in God. Um because it seems like a lot of horror movies and a lot of movies about the devil are it's just the devil versus people. And the fact that God never shows up to help is really uh, suggesting that what these movies are really doing is just wrestling with like the problem of evil. Like it's mm -hmm. clear that bad, horrible shit exists. <laughs> and so it's not at all clear that there's an opposite to that. And I'm, I, this movie feels like it's part of that tradition of, mm -hmm. yes, evil exists. The other side of that is just faith in religion and faith in God. But the actual like um, personification of God in the way that evil is personified, that's not, there's nothing, there's not a note of that in the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, this is a great point because the, the force that, that wins over the demon is Father Karras. And 
and and really what we're seeing in this movie is is the narrative of the lone hero who comes and solves the problem of an exter- external force invading a, a place of sanctuary right so it's basically like like a western <laughs> you know it, the the lone hero father Karras, is largely unattached right he seems lone he seems lonely mm-hmm. um and so is father marin these are lone uh, wanderers right. who uh, who have the ability to solve things, who have the ab- ability to use their powers of whatever they 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 have to solve the problems of others, but they can't themselves um, ever be part of something, part of a community, feel connected in in a family. So it it does really seem like he Father Karras is in the tradition of the lone American hero who comes in, solves a problem, and then either has to ride off into the sunset or die. So it's 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 more like a traditional American narrative than it is, you know, suggesting that God is the solution. I absolutely see that. That's a good distinction about the medical doctors too, because they're it's not like they're stupid or bad doctors. They're just like un, unable to. Um, they don't have the right tools for this job. She had the best that money could buy in all the human sciences, and nothing could give her resolve <laughs> for her daughter's pain. <laughs> Finally, the priests arrive. And again, I want to note the priests only succeed, even in the final moments, by getting their spirit together. And when your spirit flails, you're too str- you're too tired. You got to get all your spirit right. That's that's the that's where the faith is. Is something like can't be in doubt. You can't be vulnerable to mama's voice. You got to just keep going. Right. And that sort of where, where's the grit in that great American hero, which is why it's carried so well depicted. Like. The image of the American frontier here is a very Christian image, as you're repeating too, Shani. Mm-hmm. It's that there's something against it's not just incantatory ritual. It's I got the grit to get through the storm, to get through Nebraska, to eviscerate all those people and get my <laughs> dominion back. <laughs> so uh, that's fantastic. Um, I know we need to leave soon. Is there any stone that we have not turned? Is there anything you guys uh, want to talk about that we haven't addressed? Um, I named my cat Pazuzu. <laughs> we have a, a beautiful, fluffy black Halloween cat, and we named her Pazuzu. Um, and I, <laughs> I and I did a lot of research about Pazuzu. I, you know, in a superstitious way, I was a little worried that naming an animal Pazuzu would be inviting some kind of malfeasance into my home. But it turns out that um, Pazuzu is, uh, I think, an Assyrian demon. Of the of the wind, south wind, west wind, particular direction of the wind, and associated with disease and pestilence, but also pregnant women would wear those Pazuzu amulets around their their necks because Pazuzu was a domestic demon that protected you and your home and your family from other demons. So we thought it was a good name for a cat, but that's what Pazuzu is. And so I looked this up, and I was like. Why are you hating on Pazuzu? Pazuzu does not seem to be the correct demon to be, you know, the vehicle for the entry of the devil in 1973. <laughs> but I, I needed to get that out that, um, that that's great. That Pazuzu, in in point of fact, is not actually really a bad guy. I really appreciate that we reclaimed the <laughs> uh, the masturbation with crucifix scene, and that we reclaimed Pazuzu as being defamed uh, by this movie unfairly. What are you thinking, Katie? Uh, I, I was just thinking about why I really think Ellen Burson's life is kind of amazing as a depiction of a free woman and a free woman of means hmm. who gets to walk out of her house at the end looking good, looking assembled, 
not ruined by the situation moving on in a fly vehicle. Again, it's not being that baller isn't my style, but I respect that the film gave her and Reagan back their own physical integrity at the end and sent them off in the warmth of the relationship they had beginning. If anything with Reagan now, a little less wild, a little less without faith. But so you feel maybe something's been lost in the feminist journey, but they're still together. They're assembled. And you do feel like the, the film is not only trying to ruin them as women, even though it really traveled through them in a fairly typically um, a grieving journey. Maybe this maybe this is actually one of the reasons that I like this movie so much is because they make it through and they're they're not unscathed. They're decidedly right. scathed. But they do seem reconnected at the end. And there's something, there was something about, you know, the whatever 18 year old me watching this movie that was very, very comforted by that. You know, the fact that her scars are healing, literally and figuratively. She doesn't maybe even remember a lot of it. And she has the possibility of going on to a, a, a happy life. At the end of the original, you got you got to give it to Blatty and William Freakin. It, it does provide that message of hope. And I was always grateful for that. This was incredibly fun. Catherine Lofton and Carrie Elza, I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks and weeks. Thank you so much for this conversation. This was a blast. I really, really got a kick out of talking to you both. Thank you so much, Shani. Thank you. It's great to meet you, Carrie. I hope we meet again. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Katie. It was great. I think I've probably seen The Exorcist a half dozen times, but I learned so much talking with Carrie Elza, Associate Professor of Media Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, and Catherine Lofton, the Lex Hickson Professor of American Studies and Religious Studies, Professor of History and Divinity at Yale University. I am Shawnee Luft, Associate Dean of University College and Professor of Religion at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Our theme song was written by Derek Carden, and our logo is by artist and graphic designer Ryan Drymiller. You can see links to more of their work in the show notes to our podcast. Happy Halloween, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Learn more about UW-Stevens Point and all our programs at uwsp.edu.